three, two, one. Hello, and thank you for joining us on Kentucky Caliber. This week we got a couple of things I wanted to talk about. Of course, uh, here in eastern Kentucky, the flood recovery efforts are continuing, and that will be the case, I think, for some time, uh, not just weeks, but months, uh, as communities try to rebuild and recover um, from the floods that happened a few weeks ago. And, you know, a lot of folks, like I, I wanted to say, uh, give a shout-out to Team Rubicon, which is just one of many really good volunteer organizations that have come to the region to offer assistance and help to those in need whose homes uh, have been damaged or destroyed by the floods. And, uh, you know, we work hard, and, and Team Rubicon as a whole works very hard um, when it comes to the actual uh, labor involved in, in recovering from homes that have been uh, flood damaged. It's, it's very labor-intensive. But one of the things that uh, the volunteers, even though they work really hard and, and they should be, you know, thanked for their work, at the end of the day, you know, when we when we leave the work site, you know, we we go either to the um, to the rally point there, with which they had, or some of us. In my case, I just come back home. So we we leave the the destruction behind. But for folks who are actually the the victims who who lost their homes or their possessions, um, you know, they're still doing cleanup even all these weeks later. So the level of exhaustion that that they have to be feeling is is hard to describe uh, with just words. And and I know they appreciate. Um, the volunteer efforts that are ongoing, but folks themselves who don't have that option to just go home at the end of the day after they've been working hard and cleaning up the mess the flood left behind, um, they're just they're just exhausted. And, and hopefully um, all the different sources of, of revenue and funding that can come in to help the, the rebuilding process kick into a higher gear uh, can get underway as soon as possible. I know there have been problems with FEMA, which is the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and um, I, I sincerely hope that our that our legislators and our, our elected officials are able to to solve help solve those problems as soon as possible because the last thing people need um, when they're trying to recover from flood damage or, or rebuild a home and and just move on with their lives is to have part of the funding for that process held up unnecessarily by by red tape or by a bureaucracy that's not responsive to the needs of those that it's supposed to serve. So I truly hope that all of those problems are solved as quick as possible so that people can get the help that they need here in eastern Kentucky in the areas and those counties that were affected by the historic flooding that took place uh, just a few weeks ago. And it is historic uh, by any measure. The One of the biggest floods on our record before this one was 1957. And I'll just cite an example, the Kentucky River um, the record held the record for how high it had ever crested during a flood, and that record was not only beaten but obliterated uh, by the 2022 floods. The, the river ended up cresting several feet higher than the 57 flood levels, and the 57 flood levels were were devastating. So this is going to be a long-term project for the region, and we'll, we'll do some additional. Um, we'll probably end up doing some additional shows on that. Uh, in the near future uh, as folks are able to uh, to speak about what happened but right now they're too busy uh, just trying to to rebuild things and, and get on with their lives uh, so that's always in our thoughts and of course we we wish them the best uh, in their recovery efforts the main topic for this week that i wanted to discuss is the rule of law and the reason why i know that's a, a kind of a broad abstract topic 
the reason why I wanted to talk about that this week is on the Veteran for Responsible Leadership, VFRL. I'm the national host for their podcast. And next week, we're going to be discussing that topic in much more depth. And I look forward to that discussion. So this is just sort of a primer leading up to that, which I hope folks will tune in and listen to. VFRL is a really good organization. And the folks there are dedicated to preserving the integrity of our elections and the rule of law is is a big part of that so that's the re- one of the reasons why we're going to be having that discussion and of course there are many current events that are going on that make us you know that deserve attention that are related to the concept of the rule of law and I'm not just talking about here in the United States the the obvious easy example here in in, in the US is the the January 6 committee hearings but there are other events going on in the world around us that we should pay attention to as well because they tell us something about how fragile the rule of law is. And and it is important for societies that have democratic uh, models of governance like the United States that we maintain uh, the rule of law. And, And so the example that I wanted to focus on just for a moment this week is India, which is, by the way, the world's largest democracy by by number of people. Um, in terms of just, just, just the sheer population and how many people vote. I think in their, their last election, something like 400 million people voted nationwide, which is greater than the entire population of the United States. So here in the U.S., we have a population of around 330 million, and roughly half of that, or maybe a little bit more, are, are of voting age or are registered to vote. Many others are, are young or too young to vote um, or, or don't cast ballots in, in elections, even if they are registered. So we don't get anywhere near um, as high a total volume of votes cast in our elections as India does. And so that's that's one of the reasons why I wanted to focus on it. There's a really interesting book, and I had a chance to read it last week. And the name, the title of the book is called Azadi, Freedom, Fascism, Fiction by Arathati Roy. And the word Azadi in Urdu actually translates into freedom. And so this is um, the author's part of the time they spend talking about events that are happening in India today and in the last few years. But these, the comments when it comes to things happening in the political arena, whether it's the rise of um, certain factions within a country that want to control power and punish their minorities, within that country and use political power only for their own ethnic group uh, or their own only for folks who have the same political agenda as they do. And that, of course, is very divisive. If that sounds familiar to listeners in the United States, then what's going on in India would also seem familiar. And I just wanted to start with a quote, and I think this is this is really relevant. There's a little bit to unpack in this. I acknowledge that up front, but we, we will. And so here's this is um, this is a quote directly from the book, and here's how the, here's the quote: "Quote fake news is the skeletal structure, the scaffolding over which the specious wrath that fuels fascism drapes itself. The foundation on which that scaffolding rests is fake history, possibly the oldest form of fake news. Fake news is at least as old as fiction, and of course, both can often be." the same thing. The history being peddled by Hindu nationalists, that hackneyed tale of spurious value and exaggerated victimhood in which history is turned into mythology and mythology into history, has been very ably 
perforated and demolished by serious scholars. But the tale was never meant for serious scholars. It was meant for an audience that few serious scholars hope to reach. While we laugh in derision, it's spreading like an epidemic and blossoming in the popular imagination like a brain-deadening malignancy. End quote. So, what is, what is the author talking about here? The, um, it, it came from an, an earlier talk the author gave, which was entitled Fiction in the Time of Fake News. Now, here in the U.S., of course, fake news is a topic that has been fairly widely discussed. And depending on your individual point of view or your own uh, political or even religious beliefs or your educational background, um, socioeconomic standing, so sometimes... You know, depending on the point of view of the observer, one person's absolute truth is another person's fake news, and vice versa. And so that's, that's very problematic for democratic societies because in order to function, democratic systems of governments rely on the ability of citizens and groups of citizens to communicate with each other, to work out their differences, and to solve collective problems. They do that in a number of different ways. The most popular way is by passing legislation, which is designed to correct problems that, that a country is facing. And here in the United States, we do it at the state level and at the federal level and even at the local level, too. But the, the federal level and state gets most of the attention because those laws tend to impact the most people. And so for that system of government to work, for elected officials to come together and pass laws and enact policies that are supposed to help solve problems, all of that depends on the ability of people of different political views to communicate with each other. And what we're seeing, and in the case of India in particular, and I'll highlight them, although this is going on to a lesser extent here in the United States, is an inability of different groups to communicate with each other because there are elements within the majority, which is a majority ethnic group, who don't want to communicate with people of different political persuasions. They don't want to collaborate with different groups of people who have different points of view. What one, there's one large dominating group that wants all the power for itself, and they want everyone else to just do what they want, which is, of course, not the way a true democracy functions. Now, here in the United States, of course, we're a republic. But that is a representative form of a democracy where we send elected officials to pass laws and then enact those to solve problems that are commonly faced in the, in the public body. In India, so this has been challenged recently, so where here in the United States we have different groups competing for power. And we do this every so often uh, at the federal level. Every two years we have elections and so all the members of Congress are elected, a portion of the Senate, and then every four years the president. Um, and so during those election cycles, we, there, there are battles for power that, that take place because whoever wins will get the, to set the agenda and pass laws uh, during their term of office. And if those laws turn out to be successful, then that could lead to re-election and they could stay in power. And so that, that, uh, that hold on the political machinery of the country would continue uh, and theoretically, if they're doing a good job, whichever, it doesn't matter what your persuasion is, Democrat or Republican or Independent or something else, um, if the group in power is doing a good job, if they're passing laws and, and enacting policies that are effective and they're making things better, then it could be argued that they, they should stay in power because they're, they're being beneficial to the country that they're supposed to serve. That's, you know, a, a theoretical take 
on how democratic governments governance can work when it when it works well. But one of the dangers of popular vote is that the passions of the majority can sometimes get away from them. And, of course, James Madison talked about this in Federalist Number 10 when he warned future generations and even his contemporaries of the dangers of factions. And he defined that as a, a group of citizens that are actuated by some common impulse or passion adverse to the rights of other citizens. And so you can cite any number of examples of that, and, and we can do some, some examples for that here in the United States. But in India, what is happening, and there's evidence to back this up, the author's central claim is that a Hindu nationalist majority in India is not only taking control of the machinery of state through the election process, but they're using the machinery of state to not only punish, but also persecute minorities within the Indian nation. And so there's a lot of different ethnic groups, a lot of different languages that are spoken within India. In fact, some people may even think of India as a continent or subcontinent rather than a nation. Uh, because there are so many different types of languages and, and ethnic groups and all, all together in that one location, a large location. But the largest of those groups are, are clearly um, of the Hindu persuasion, and you can consider that to be a religion or an ethnicity. Um, it, it doesn't matter how you define it that way. The case of the, um, the folks that hold power represent that Minor, that excuse me that majority group and it's the way that they've been exercising it in recent years that has that sort of caught the author's attention now i remember back um gosh i guess it's been i don't know 10 12 years uh, back i guess it was 2000 either 2010 or 2011 when i, I worked at uh, corp i worked corporate security for target at, at uh, target's corporate headquarters there in minneapolis target has a, a pretty good sized campus um, and Bangalore, India, which is way down in the southern uh, part of India. And Bangalore is a hub for the IT world, for information technology. There's a, a lot of international business that comes there and does business from there uh, in Bangalore. And Target has a, has a pretty good size, or at least they used to. I think they still do. Um, they used to have a pretty good sized campus there. And so a lot of times we would, I had the chance to work directly with um, our counterparts, our corporate counterparts and partners in India and we used to, among other things, one of the things we received on a daily basis um, was a, an update on the security situation in and around areas where Target was working. And we generally extended that to other areas of the country as well because folks travel uh, and they fly in and out of different airports. And so really what I'm saying is that, that the security situation and the, the political situation in India was on the radar of corporate security, which which I was a, a member of as a senior analyst. So we paid attention to what was going on uh, in India, not just from what was reported, but also from what folks who, who were actually working there were telling us uh, was going on. And so from time to time, you get uh, what they call disturbances or, or riots that break out. And those occasionally, if they're large enough, will get the attention of the international media. And sometimes that'll, if it's, if it's severe enough and there's enough fatalities or enough damage, that'll filter back to the, uh, the people in different parts of the, the world or here in the United States or Europe. There was one incident in particular, though, amongst those that stand out because India is a large, over a billion people. It's a large nation. And, and as would be expected for a country of that size with a population that large, they have their share of civil unrest and they have their share problems, just like any country 
Uh, nothing unusual about that. But one of the incidents that really stands out was in Gujarat in 2002. And even today, the, the exact nature of the events that took place there are still disputed. But what it boils down to is there was a, a very intense flare-up of inter-ethnic violence, uh, specifically of Hindu versus Muslim. And so, and, and it started with, I think, an attack on a train which left a, a number of Hindus dead. And then there was retaliation by, by a number of Hindu militias who went and attacked several members of the Muslim community that were in Gujarat. And, and the fatality count, I don't have the numbers uh, at my fingertips. It was pretty substantial. Estimates range from a few hundred to over a thousand. And, but that's, as terrible as that is, the real significance of that is not how many people were killed per se, but why that region saw a flare-up of violence. And this is important. It was not because they were fighting for a political office. They, they were not fighting for control to the means of production or something of economic value. So they weren't fighting about money. They weren't fighting about politics. They weren't even directly fighting about religion. This was widespread organized, and many argue, state-sanctioned violence purely on the basis of one ethnic group attacking another. So they weren't fighting for an I mean, you can understand if, you know, if someone was tempers got out of hand for an election or for a large amount of money or for some other resource that's valuable or for land, and, and those type of things, as terrible as conflicts are, at least they're, they're a little bit easier to understand. But none of those factors were present Um in Gujarat in 2002, this was simply inter-ethnic violence based on, carried out by people who wanted to harm other human beings simply because they were of a different ethnicity, had a different religion, or spoke a different language. That was it. And it was organized. And, and many claim, with some evidence, although it's not 100% conclusive, but with some evidence that the state apparatus, the actual government, was not only in on it, but they were advocating for it. And so stop for a minute and think about what happens when a system of government, which is supposed to operate by popular vote, instead gets taken over by a single ethnic group in a country. And they use the apparatus of state. I'm talking about the police. I'm talking about the justice system. When they use those resources to openly attack and persecute members, minority members of that country, um, it's terrible. It's a terrible thing, and, and it's the kind of thing that can escalate because those same religious and ethnic tensions that erupted in Gujarat are present in a, at a simmering level in lots of other places in India. Lots of other places. Not to mention that that could be the trigger. The same type of dynamic is present up in Kashmir, which could trigger, trigger I'm talking about the inter-ethnic uh, rivalry, the same dynamic is present up in Kashmir, which could trigger a, a war between Pakistan and India, both of whom are nuclear powers. So this type of inter-ethnic hatred and violence can be a catalyst for much larger and widespread and devastating events. The author claims that some of the members of the, of the ruling party in India um, tend to admire uh, European fascists, particularly Adolf Hitler. There's, I'm not quite sure. I'll have to do some more checking on that myself. That, that's not a claim that I can that I can say I 100% know for a fact is true. Um, but the behavior does echo 
what was witnessed in Italy and Germany and other places where um, a, an ethnic majority takes control, uses the power of the state to punish and persecute minorities. That's something that, you know, we have seen in the past. And, and Gujarat does fit that pattern of activity. So what that all means is, when I go back to the topic of this, which is the rule of law, you can't have the rule of law if you allow, if a, if a society or a country or both permit ethnic, cultural, religious, or other things of, of a nature that distinguish different groups of that society, if those things become militarized, if those differences become so pronounced that the groups not only do not talk to each other and do not try to work, work out common problems, but they openly and actively attack each other then you're sliding towards something that would look like a civil war or at least uh, a series of widespread social unrest that includes waves of, of violence such that we saw in Gujarat in 2002. And it's happened at other times. That's not an isolated incident. I want to make that clear. Um, and I remember you know, from a time at corporate security that our, our partners in India were always very very adamant to assure us that, that these type of flare-ups were nothing to worry about and that they weren't systematic and that they were they, that they weren't they didn't pose a threat but that's you can understand why they're saying that you know they're, they're talking to a major western business that's investing money in their country and if people if companies like them started like targets and there's a lot of other uh, western companies that work there too and european as well so if they started to think that the security situation was getting bad they might not want to do business there anymore so what it boils down to is that while i, I respected our, our counterparts and our, our um our partners there in India, and I always valued their their input because obviously they they know the lay of the land very well. They also have an agenda, which is they want companies like Target to keep bringing money to to India, and so they, there's a tendency to kind of get a view that may not be a hundred percent grounded in uh, the ground truth of what's going on um, in India today, and so all of that shows you. When you look at the way democratic societies function, if the, the apparatus of state is used or even perceived to be used by one group of society to persecute and punish another, that is detrimental to the rule of law. Because the rule of law means, and I should have said this at the outset, but we're talking about a system where the law is the final arbiter. We obey the law, we have a way to change the law, and we stick to that process when it comes to matters of justice. You know, if there's criminal activity, we let the legal system handle it. We don't devolve into large groups of citizens organized into, into private militias. And by the way, that's a very kind term. Critics call them armed mobs attacking their enemies within that country's setting. So that's, that's this recipe for potentially civil war and for lower-level uh, social unrest and widespread violence. So we've seen... During 2020, we saw widespread social unrest here in the United States. On January 6th, we saw our capital, which was attacked by a, a mob of folks who wanted to overturn a lawful election. And so we're, we, we have not reached the stage that India is at when it comes to the severity of inter-ethnic uh, violence. But due to political differences and the, the hardening of political attitudes and the increasing threats made by groups against one against the other. Um, and 1-6 is just one example of that. So I, I would argue 
that we in the United States are, are moving in that direction. We have not reached the level that India has, has reached, but we're moving in that direction. And that's a bad thing. That's something that we want to stop. That's something we want to, to reverse. We want to bring things back to the point where not only are threats of violence not given or carried out, but where different groups of the society, whether they have different, of different ethnic groups or different religions or different political persuasions, so that they are once again able to talk to each other in a, in a reasonable, you know, civil manner, communicate and discuss the differences of, of opinion they have, and, and address the problems that they, they face as a society. Because at the end of the day, they're still neighbors. And that's the case, and that's one of the things that the India example so so starkly throws into relief, is that when you have violence like this in communities, even when the the violent act is over, the folks that live there and suffer through it, they're still the people on different uh, sides of that uh, attack are still neighbors. They still have to live right next to each other, and so what that means is the potential for retaliation or a cycle of revenge to get going is very real. And that can create a long-term instability, not only for, for states and regions, but potentially for countries too. And so that is something that we should be on the lookout for. So we can look at India and we can see that is not where we want to be uh, as the, in terms of how our democracy functions, how our government functions. We do not want a single ethnic group to gain control of the machinery of government and then use that control to punish people of different ethnicities or different religious groups or of different political persuasions. We don't want that to happen. That is not the democratic way. The basis of democracy and of democratic governance is power sharing. We share power. That means that we work with people that we have differences with, and at the end of the day, we settle our differences peacefully. We don't have to agree. You don't have to say they're right and we're wrong or vice versa. You don't have to, to like the things that they believe in or that they're doing. But we do agree to abide by the laws that are passed, to respect the process for changing those laws, and at the end of the day, agree to live with each other peacefully. Because I think that's what people really want. That's what we want. We want to live in a society where the government works and we have the opportunity to prosper in peaceful surroundings. But when we let tempers or passions flare up, to the point where one group of citizens is, is ready to attack the other physically, I mean, and, and, and with organized systematic violence, you cannot have a rule of law under those conditions. That is a breakdown of law and order. That is a breakdown of stability and security, and that is a, a long-term and immediate threat to the prosperity and happiness of nations that are being affected. And so we pay attention to those things because we don't want to have to get to the point where there's the level of, of violence that we've seen in places like Gujarat before we decide that we need to do something about it here in America. We can learn lessons from what's going on in other parts of the world. I know it's difficult sometimes with so much going on here at home to, to pay attention to things that are happening 8,000 miles away. It is. It's, it's difficult. The, the things like the flooding here in eastern Kentucky and whatever the, the domestic political um, argument of the day is, those things or other disasters that happen, it doesn't matter what it is. There's a lot of things competing for our attention. And we, we tend to give those things our attention because we have no choice most of the time. And that's absolutely true. We do have to do that. We can't ignore problems that are right in front of us. We absolutely have to address those. 
but we also need to spend a little bit of time looking at things that are going on in other parts of the world that might be useful for us to observe so that we can learn a lesson from that without suffering the same type of consequences that the folks who live there already are. And you know, the, the U.S. relationship with India is long and complicated, and there's a tendency for us to gloss over the problems that India is having because we see them as an ally against China, and so whatever domestic problems they're having tend not to get much attention or be highlighted by our elected leaders, especially at the presidential level or the State Department. We have a tendency to just sort of not say much about those because we want a partner in, in Central Asia that would give us a potential ally against China. Um, not just because there might someday, hopefully not, but someday become a, a military conflict, but just for the competition of influence from a geopolitical perspective. America wants India as an ally against China, and India's leaders know that. They know that. They're well aware of that, and they use that to their advantage as leverage to get things that they want from us, uh, whether it's favorable political treatment or, or what else, whatever it is. It doesn't matter. But we still have a responsibility to pay attention to things that are that are happening uh, in the world and that's why i wanted to focus just a little bit on unrest and the, the things that are happening in india today now whether the real situation across the country is as dire as arahati roy says it is you know i'm sure there are folks out there who may disagree with that and and they could be right um, i'm not claiming that the author is just right it should be taken at, at face value I am claiming, though, that their arguments deserve further attention. I think they deserve uh, a deeper look. And so that, that's something that I will do whenever I get any, any free time um, in the next few weeks. I'll, I'll certainly try to give that uh, some more attention when I can for the same reason that I already stated. So I, I appreciate everyone taking the time to listen. I hope it was uh, informative and interesting. And the book, again, that I just finished reading is called Azadi, Freedom, Fascism, and Fiction by Arahati Roy. Um, it concerns politics in India and things that are happening um, in India today and in the past few years. I think it's a really good read. I would highly recommend it. And if folks read it and, and have a completely different take on it than I did, by all means, feel free to contact me or, or let me know. Um, I'd love to hear hear from you. And if you want to have a discussion on it, I think that would be, uh, be great too. But that's all I've got for today. So I hope everybody has a great uh, afternoon and take care.